Section 13 of the Empresses of Constantinople. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nancy Midland, Oakland, California. The Empresses of Constantinople by Joseph McCabe. Chapter 9, Part 2. The Tavern Keeper's Daughter. The spirited events which followed must here be told briefly. On Sunday morning, 9th August, the advance guard of Nicephorus's army appeared on the Asiatic shore in sight of the city, at the point where Scutari now is, and the people began to make their choice in the usual sanguinary way. The services in the great church were desecrated with riot. The battle against the guards who were faithful to Bringus was conducted in the streets, and by midnight the houses of his supporters were in flames. Theophano remained with her children behind the barrier of palace guards, listening not unwillingly to the increasing cries for Nicephorus. We may very well assume that she had had her share in the riot. One of the most formidable leaders of those who called for Nicephorus was the bold and ambitious Basil, the natural son of the elder Romanus castrated by his father that he might never aspire to the purple yet promoted to wealth and high office he seems to have come to an agreement with theophano as soon as the battle began he led three thousand of his servants and followers armed into the augustium and they continued all sunday and throughout the night to hunt the soldiers of bringus and loot the mansions of his friends Nicephorus had meantime reached the Hieria Palace on the Asiatic side, and on the following Sunday he made his triumphant entry by the Golden Gate and along the Messe to St. Sophia, the citizens draping their houses with the scarlet of rejoicing and adorning the way with laurel and myrtle. The patriarch, Polyucides, met him at the cathedral, and Theophano would be present on her golden throne in her violet mourning robes when the crown was put on his head. His next step must have caused a sensation in the city and entirely deceived the clergy. He sent a monk to conduct Theophano from the palace to the fortress, or higher prison, of Petrion on the Golden Horn, and maintained for a few weeks his austere aversion from wine and women. We hardly need the assurance of the chroniclers that this was done by arrangement between the two, and we may regard it as a device of Theophano. Nicephorus was now aflame like a youth. In the middle of September, he threw off the mask, in the words of the ecclesiastical chronicler, and announced that he was to marry Theophano on 20th September. His monastic advisers, he explained, had concluded that his new position demanded that he should marry. The marriage service was performed by the patriarch himself in a chapel on the grounds of the palace, and while the emperor went to kiss the altars at St. Sophia, Theophano retired to her familiar apartments to congratulate herself on the fortunate issue of her difficult maneuvers. And presently the emperor returned in terrible rage to tell her that a formidable obstacle had revealed itself. When he had reached the door of the sanctuary, the patriarch Polyucides had barred his way and said that he would be excluded from the church for a year for contracting a second marriage. His angry protest had availed nothing. 
before a vast crowd of his subjects, he had had to submit to the austere priest, and he was to remain in the ignominious position of a penitent for a year. Concealing their anger, they concluded the day, as usual, with a banquet to the leading officers and nobles in the gold-roofed Triclinon, now restored and magnificently decorated by Constantine, and retired to discuss Polyucides. The patriarch was undoubtedly a stern and conscientious priest, insisting upon a plain law of his church. We may, however, assume that another feeling mingled with his sense of discipline. Nicephorus had, in the literal meaning, tasted blood at his matrimonial banquet, and he passionately refused to forego the embraces of Theophano. His pious practices were wholly discarded in a day and the clergy must have been bitterly disappointed to see him passing from their allegiance to that of the beautiful adventuress. So Polyucides had made a bold bid for power, and he had made a serious mistake. From that moment Nicephorus conceived not merely a personal hatred of the patriarch, but an anti-clerical spirit, and began to restrict the wealth and power of the priests and monks. He clung to his enchanting young bride and sternly faced the clergy. In the discussion that at once filled the palace and the city, some careless noble named Estalianus had recalled the fact that Nicephorus was godfather to one of the empress's children, and the patriarchs learned this. He at once pronounced that the marriage was invalid, as the church regarded this spiritual relationship as an insuperable impediment to marriage, and bade the emperor dismiss Theophano. The feelings of Theophano during these days of disappointment and anxiety are left to our imagination. It is enough that her charms held Nicephorus to her in spite of the terrible threats of the patriarch, and it may be that it was she who approached the unfortunate Stylianus and persuaded him to commit perjury. Nicephorus gathered a council of pliant bishops and senators, and they decided that, as the law invoked by the patriarch had been passed by the heretic Constantine Copronymus, it was not binding. Polyucides scorned their decision. Then Stylianus came forward to swear that Nicephorus had not been godfather to any child of Theophano, and the emperor's father, Bardas, came forward to swear that he was the godfather. The patriarch knew that they were lying, but his clergy were anxious to escape a formidable struggle, and he was forced to yield. To Theophano, it was, no doubt, immaterial whether or no she was married to Nicephorus. She had a strong and devoted soldier to protect her and her children. How the pious Nicephorus reconciled himself to the situation is one of the things that God only knows. All we know is that the possession of Theophano dissipated his asceticism as the summer sun disperses the mists, and he eagerly embraced a woman to whom, under the creed of his church, he was not married. During the six years' reign of Nicephorus, the empress had little occasion to assert her wayward personality, but it is significant that the one statement made of her is an accusation of crime. One of the sons of the older Romanus still languished in captivity, and it seemed possible, in view of the growing discontent at Constantinople, that an intrigue would be formed to put him on the throne. Theophano, we are curtly informed, made an end of him. 
there is no reason to doubt that messengers were sent to his distant prison with an order that he should be put to death, and it is more probable that the order came from Theophano than from Nicephorus. For the first year or two, however, Nicephorus prudently removed his fiery young bride from the seditious and immoral atmosphere of Constantinople, and she passed her days in unwanted innocence amid the lonely mountains of Cilicia. The emperor had spent a few months in an effort, by lavish entertainment, to dispel the suspicion of parsimony and meanness under which he had ascended the throne. The hippodrome rang daily with the applause and contests of the citizens, and the winter was enlivened with great gaiety. Meantime, Nicephorus was gathering an immense army for the more substantial work of driving back the Saracens, and when, in the early spring, the cosmopolitan regiments were assembled along the Asiatic shore, he announced that the empress would accompany him to the field. He knew Theophano too well to leave her in that world of intriguing eunuchs and ambitious courtiers. A little pot-bellied man with dark skin and little dark eyes, with short grayish beard betraying his age, and with disproportionately long arms and short legs to his stumpy figure, he felt that he was not likely to grow fonder to the heart of the fascinating Theophano during two or three years' absence. On the other hand, one must not imagine the sensual young empress as being inconvenienced by the rough ways of a camp. The rulers of Constantinople carried their luxury even into the camp, on the occasions on which they condescended to take the field in person. Eighty horses were needed for the transport of the kitchen equipment and table silver alone, and thirty were required to convey the imperial wardrobe from town to town, while the whole countryside was laid under contribution to supply delicacies for the table. No doubt these normal glories of an imperial march would be at least doubled in view of the presence of Theophano. They sailed from the Bucolian port in the great gold and purple galley of the imperial family and joined the army at Caesarea. From that city, Theophano accompanied her husband across the hills and plains of Asia Minor until they came to the beginning of the Taurus range. Here, the emperor left Theophano and her sons in safe charge while he led his troops into the more dangerous country beyond. At the entrance of the narrow defile which the ancients knew as the Sicilian Gates was the massive fortress of Drisibion, a solitary and rugged castle in a wild mountainous district. It was in this quiet and cool home, removed from communication with the metropolis, that Theophano and her children spent the summer of the year 964. She would, of course, have an ample retinue of eunuchs and women, and every provision would be made for her comfort, but whether it was the jealousy or the amorousness of Nicephorus that detained her in this healthy solitude, she would be sure to resent it. At the beginning of the winter he returned to her with modest laurels, and may have conducted her to Caesarea or some other city of the plains for the enjoyment of the winter. But the early spring called him once more to the field, and it seems that Theophano had to spend another summer in the wilds of Cilicia. It was only in the autumn of 965 that she re-entered Constantinople to witness the splendid triumph of her husband. In the following year, Nicephorus made another campaign, and from the time of his return in the autumn of 966, 
the shadow of tragedy began to creep over his life. His vast armies and laborious victories had laid a heavy burden of taxation on the empire, and, passionately as Constantinople loved to see a herd of captives driven before the royal chariot in the hour of triumph, it was little disposed to pay for remote victories. The clergy also were embittered. Nicephorus, soured by the action of the patriarch and thus made sensible of the revolting spread of luxurious idleness under the name of monasticism, curtailed the revenues of the clergy, forbade the further conversion of mansions and palaces into monasteries, and claimed the right to appoint bishops. The people became sullen and hostile. When, on Easter Sunday, 967, Nicephorus crossed the Augustium to go to church, they pelted him with mud and stones so violently that a group of the more sober citizens had to rescue him. It was expected that he would inflict some punishment, and when, a few weeks later, he ordered his guards to descend to the arena in the Hippodrome and begin their military evolutions, either to impress or to entertain the spectators, there was a frantic rush for the gates, and many were trodden underfoot. By the summer of 969, life in the sacred palace had become very somber and unpleasant, and Theophano began to seek a new companion. The ardor of her husband's passion had been chilled by the terrors which now surrounded him, and in preparation for the death which was foretold to him, he returned zealously to his monastic habits. Even the soldiers were now hostile to him, except his immediate corps of foreign mercenaries. Nicephorus relied on their formidable axes, converted the old and decaying Bucolian palace into a massive fortress, girt the whole enclosure with a lofty, castellated wall, and retired within this heavily guarded circle to spend his days and nights in prayer and penitence. It is one of the most curious features of the story that, while he moodily punished his bravest officers for their very victories, the lithe and insidious Theophano retained his confidence. She had no longer the comparative solace of his sensual fire, and she must have looked on with deep disdain when he refused to share the imperial bed at night, and, after long hours of prayer and psalm reading, flung himself for a brief and feverish sleep on a panther skin spread upon the ground in the corner of his chamber. But Theophano was not excluded from the Bucolian palace, and she laid her plans to defeat his desperate entrenchments. The new partner whom she chose to encourage was the general Zemiscus, the emperor's nephew, whom we have seen on an earlier page revealing the perfidy of Bringus to his uncle. He had been dismissed from office by Nicephorus on account of certain suspicions, and we have little trouble in inferring that he was suspected of liaison with Theophano and eagerness for the throne. He was, like his uncle, a very little and robust man, but much more handsome than Nicephorus. His broad chest and great brawny arms were redeemed by a fair countenance, a pair of keen and friendly blue eyes, and a crown of almost golden hair. I must be pardoned for inserting such portraits of the emperors as we have, while seeming to omit the more desirable portraits of their consorts. The Byzantine chroniclers rarely give us more than the very vaguest assurances that empresses were very beautiful, and so on, and the few surviving representations of them in ivory or bronze or mosaic 
are not portraits on which one would dare to found a physiognomical study. In the autumn of 969, Zemiscus was living impatiently on his private estate in Armenia when he received an assurance that Theophano had persuaded his uncle to allow him to return to court. Whether or no it is true that he had previously enjoyed the favors of Theophano, he now certainly became her ally and accomplice. She seems to have deluded Nicephorus with diabolical duplicity. A rumor, which most historians plausibly ascribe to her, was circulated in Constantinople to the effect that Nicephorus intended to castrate her sons and leave the crown to his brother Leo, who, on account of his extortions, was no less hated than he. On the other hand, Theophano persuaded Nicephorus that the interest of herself and her children would be best consulted if Zemiscus were recalled to the capital and compelled to marry some noble lady of the city. Nicephorus assented, and his nephew came to Constantinople. Then it seems to have been betrayed to the emperor, probably by his brother, that Zemiscus was being secretly admitted to the empress's apartments, and he placed restrictions on him. Zemiscus retired to his mansion at Chalcedon on the Asiatic side and continued to communicate with Theophano. The culmination of the plot is a thrilling, if sordid, page of romance. On the night of 10th December, Theophano visited her husband and persuaded him to leave his chamber door unfastened, as she would see him later. He still failed to suspect her, although some watchful priest had warned him of the plot. Sometime before, a group of tall, veiled women had presented themselves at the palace door and been admitted. And when they had reached the secret chambers assigned to them by Theophano, it was a group of bronzed soldiers who emerged from the mantles and veils. Someone betrayed them, and Nicephorus sent an officer to explore the palace, but he, probably being in the pay of Theophano, reported that all was well, and Nicephorus turned to his long psalms. Theophano and her servants were in the upper part of the palace, looking out anxiously over the Sea of Marmara. It was a dark, wintry night, and the snow was falling heavily. At length, a faint whistle from below told them that a boat had arrived from Chalcedon and lay under the walls. A basket, some say a ladder, was tied to a rope and lowered into the depths, and presently Zemiscus and several companions were within the palace. An Arab historian would have us believe that Theophano herself led them with drawn swords to her husband's room. It is more probable that, as the Greek writers say, she left this to one of her eunuchs. For a moment, the conspirators started back in alarm. The imperial bed was empty, and they fancied that the plot was known and Nicephorus would fall on them. But the eunuch showed them the sleeping form of the emperor on his panther rug, and, with a cry for help to the virgin, the strange soldier monk passed out of the imperial world he had invaded. Basil, the astute head chamberlain, had an opportune illness at that moment, and only recovered in time to do reverence to his new sovereign. The guards alone rushed from their quarters and attacked the conspirators, but the sight of the grisly head of the late emperor, which was exhibited at the window, induced them to sheathe their swords and accept a new paymaster. So Zemiscus proceeded gaily to the golden palace, Chrysotriclinon, to put on the purple slippers, and Theophano retired to her room 
to reflect on the next phase of her career, perhaps to glance now and again at the ghastly trunk of her late husband, which lay all night and all the following day in the snow without. This surely was the last crime she need commit. She was still young and might look forward to many years of power with the robust soldier she had invited to share her throne. Six days later, Zemiscus went in state to St. Sophia to receive his diadem and found the stern patriarch, Polyucides, again boldly barring the way. He refused to crown Zemiscus except on three conditions. He must undo the anti-clerical work of his predecessor. He must deliver to justice the actual murderer of Nicephorus. And he must drive the guilty Theophano from the palace. Theophano now discovered the full brutality of her accomplice. He bowed at once to the commands of the patriarch and the beautiful young empress. She must still have been in her twenties, unless she was much older than her husband at the time of her first marriage, was dragged from her apartments to the Bucolean Quay and shipped to one of the dreary island prisons in the Sea of Marmara. She was furious with rage and disappointment. After a time, she escaped and contrived to reach the altar in St. Sophia. But even the mob of Constantinople shrank from the murderess, and her former confederate, Basil, was allowed to tear her from the altar. In her frenzy, she beat the Grand Chamberlain with her own white hands, and, reverting to the language of the tavern, poured her invectives on the Scythian bastard. Her career had been so darkened with suspicion and had so plainly ended in murder that her appeals fell on a cold, if not jeering, audience, and she was conveyed to distant Armenia and confined to a monastery. The rest of the story of Theophano, as far as it is known to us, is told in the curt statement that she was recalled to court in the reign of her eldest son, Basil, and again enjoyed the imperial position for half a century. John Zemiscus retained only for a few years the power for which he had paid so base a price. The marriage which he presently contracted was not much less sordid than the marriage he had intended to contract, if, indeed, he ever had a serious desire to make so dangerous a woman as Theophano the partner of his throne. He took a nun from her monastery, bade the patriarch, whose scruples had their limits, relieve her of her vows, and married her. The Empress Theodora is not clearly outlined in the Chronicles, but she is not without interest. She is one of those daughters of Constantine whom her brother Romanus had forced to take the veil. Zemiscus had felt that an alliance with the late dynasty would strengthen his position, and it may be remembered that the daughters of Constantine were not at all scrupulous. They had refused to wear the black robe or eat the bread and beans of the monastery. Constantinople is said to have indulged in the most boisterous rejoicing over the marriage, and even the heavens seemed to express their satisfaction when one of the senators discovered in his orchard an ancient stone on which was miraculously inscribed, Long Life to John and Theodora. There were, however, skeptics in the city as it was recalled that a similar discovery had been made in the interest of Irene and her son, yet the blessing had proved illusory. 
The senator was richly rewarded, but he may have lived to see the futility of his miracle. After a few years, 976, the handsome Chamberlain Basil bribed John's cook to put less innocent things than condiments in his dishes, and he went the beaten way of Byzantine emperors. Theodora disappears after his death, though we can hardly suppose that she returned to her monastery. Theophano's sons, Basil and Constantine, now became joint emperors, and they recalled their mother from Armenia to the palace. One would be inclined to suspect that the poisoning did not come to her as a surprise, but the chroniclers do not impeach her, and we need not strive to lengthen the list of her misdeeds. She makes no further mark for good or evil in the chronicles. Possibly the terrible experiences of her early womanhood and seven years of sober reflection in her monastic prison had destroyed her passion for intrigue. In any case, the very vigorous administration of her elder son left her little room to interfere, and she seems to have been content with the quiet enjoyment of the position of a dowager empress. According to George the Monk, or his continuer, she lived for fifty years after the death of her first husband, that is to say, after 963, and so she must have passed her seventieth year at the time of her death. There seems to have been no rival empress during that time. We may trust that the character of Theophano sobered and matured, and that the forty-year silence means that she led a regular and unambitious life. However that may be, the personality she shows when she is under the full limelight on the imperial stage is one of unrestrained passion and greed. She was a tavern keeper's daughter in the purple, an appalling instance of the lowest type of Greek beauty. End of section 13. Recording by Nancy Midland, Oakland, California.